on the back of the insert, if you don't have a Bible, is the text for this morning's message printed out as well. We'll begin the 23rd chapter of Luke, the trial of the king of the Jews. Now, we're going to read the uh, first 25 verses, even though we'll only get through the first half of that this week, as Jesus goes before not one, not two, but three Roman trials, is pronounced innocent at all of them, and he is still summarily executed. Luke 23. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. They began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad. For he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him. And he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For Before this, they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called the chief priests and the rulers and the people, and he said to them, You brought me this man, one who was, as one who is misleading the people, and after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of the charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who'd been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demands should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Lord God, what an awesome an awful text of your word. The sinless son of God, the true king of the Jews, the Messiah, the great prophet like Moses, innocent yet condemned, human governments established by you to reward righteousness and punish evil, reward unrighteousness and punish the righteous. And yet through this all, Lord, through this tragic 
perverse twisting of justice, you are accomplishing your great will. Through this miscarriage of justice, you saved your people. And so we see something glorious here too. We see your son standing bold, unafraid, trusting in you. And we see that even through the acts of wicked men, you accomplish your purposes. Give us eyes to see now as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, we looked at Jesus' Jewish trial. Luke insinuates two phases to that. From harmonizing all the Gospels, we know there were three. He was first taken to the father-in-law of the high priest, Annas. Then he was taken to the high priest. Luke records that. And then he was taken before the Sanhedrin, which is the only actual encounter Luke records the dialogue of. And the Sanhedrin, in Jesus' interaction with them, we learn three things about Jesus. Because Luke is laying out for us, again, things that have been evident in his gospel. But in the encounter with the Sanhedrin, at the end of chapter 22, verses 66 through 71, we learn that Jesus is the Messiah. He is indeed the Son of Man, prophesied in Daniel. And he is the King of the Jews. Sorry, not the King of the Jews, the Son of God. Son of Man, Messiah, Son of God. Those are the titles And they don't exactly name their charge, but it appears that what they're condemning Jesus for is the sin of blasphemy, making himself an equal with God. He's the son of God. He can sit at God's right hand. And so the Sanhedrin brings a religious blasphemy charge, as best as we can see it. It's not the charge they're going to give to um, Pilate. And now begins Jesus' threefold Roman trial. We're going to look at the first two elements of that this morning. Um, as Jesus stands before Pilate and then before Herod. Herod will send him back to Pilate, and then there'll be the long interaction with the Jews. We'll look at that next week. And so this morning, we look at the trial of the king of the Jews. And that's the focus here. If, If last week we saw Jesus' religious titles, he's the son of man, he is the Messiah, he's the son of God, this morning, Luke wants us to see he is indeed the king of the Jews, and he is innocent, and he is resolute in trusting God. Those are the three things we're going to learn about Jesus. We're going to be confirmed about Jesus this morning. He is, in fact, the king of the Jews. He is innocent, and he has entrusted himself fully to God. We're going to look at this in two points, Jesus before Pilate, Jesus before Herod. So let's begin, Jesus before Pilate. And the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. Pilate is, of course, a famous figure in these stories, a famous name. And yet, up until recently, historians scoffed at his existence. This was another supposed example of the Bible making up stories and making up names. There was no trace of Pilate. This is clearly fiction. Until a team, an Italian team of archaeologists in 1961, discovered the following inscription, Herod's Amphitheater in Caesarea. Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea, has dedicated to the people of Caesarea a temple in honor of Tiberius. Not only was Pilate a real person, but he was famous enough to have his name inscribed on a public monument. Now, we don't need that to tell us he existed, but it's always nice when history and historians can confirm the text of Scripture. So Jesus is taken before Pilate. So we need to ask ourselves, who is this man, Pilate? And Luke's given us some indication. Back in chapter 3, verse 1, if you remember, Luke has done careful research. He says as much to his introduction to Theophilus. 
inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who are from the beginning or eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. You may have certainty concerning the things that were taught. And one of the evidences of that diligent inquiry are the dates and and the names of officials. And we get one of those in chapter 3, verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar... Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea. So we've already been introduced to this man, Pontius Pilate. He's the governor, the political power for Rome in Judea. And we also know that this is the very person whom the Jews were trying to hand Jesus over to. Back in chapter 20, verse 10, they sent in spies among him because they feared the people. So they watched him, sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. Because Rome alone had the power to give a death sentence. And so the Jews had the ability to have some courts, but if they wanted to kill someone, they needed that confirmed by Rome. So even though the Sanhedrin has condemned Jesus, they must bring him to the governor so that Rome can put Jesus, in fact, to death. So Pilate is the Roman official. He is the the political power in the area. We also know something else about him. In chapter 13, verse 1, we read, there were some present at that time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with the sacrifices. Pilate had put some men to death for an unknown reason, and he'd done so in a particularly barbaric way, particularly disrespectful way to the religion, mingling their bloods with the blood of the sacrifices. So we learn that Pilate was a cruel and godless man, cruel and godless. He has no fear of Yahweh, the God of the Jews. He will blaspheme their worship system, and he's cruel. He's, he's not only putting these men to death, but in a particularly sadistic, ugly way. And now I want to make this point clearly. Jesus is going to be announced innocent by both Pilate and Herod. Pilate himself will try three times to not put Jesus over to death. Make no mistake, these are not good men. Their conscience working with them, they're secretly trying. This is a wicked man. This is a godless man. This is a cruel man, which makes his verdict of innocent all the more stark. A wicked man like Pilate pronounced Jesus innocent of any crime. Also remember that Luke is writing most likely to a Roman, most excellent Theophilus, almost certainly a Roman of some stature, some power, some prominence, And so he may not know as much about Jewish leadership, but he probably is aware of Pilate. And so there's an apologetic purpose in Luke's gospel, confirming to Theophilus that whatever Jesus was said to have done, Rome found no fault in him. Jesus is indeed the king of the Jews, and Jesus is innocent. Those are the two emphatic points, and we will see Jesus trusted God and entrusted himself to him. So that's who Pilate is. Now notice all the Sanhedrin rose up. They are so unified. Whatever divisions may have previously existed, they all get up. If a few of them isn't sufficient, they all go and bring them to Pilate. And when they speak, it's all of them speaking. I don't know how they got the uniform voice, but what Luke wants us to see is they're in one accord, full agreement. They began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So now we come to the charges against Jesus. They follow along three lines. Now again, notice the corruption 
of the Sanhedrin, these would-be religious leaders. They've condemned him at the end of chapter 22 for calling himself the son of God. It's a religious charge. It's a blasphemy charge. Now, as far as we can tell, Rome would have little to no interest in that. So those are not the charges they bring to Pilate. Again, these are not men who sincerely think Jesus is wicked or evil. They hate Jesus. They'll come up with whatever excuse they need to condemn him. So they set aside their religious charge from their court, and they just bold-facedly lie. So the three charges. First, that he misleads the nation. He misleads the nation. There's an irony here, because the nation is already misled. Back in chapter um, 9, Verse 41, Jesus called them, O faithless and twisted generation, how long will I bear with you? He wasn't leading them astray. He was teaching them. We've seen that in this week in the temple, day from dawn till dusk, teaching the people hanging on his words. He's not misleading them. He's bringing them God's word. But what this is, if you're trying to understand the nature of the charge, they're saying Jesus poses a social threat. He's a threat to the peace He's stirring up controversy. He's, he's a radical, getting other people agitated. That's the, that's the nature of the charge. Why might Pilate care? Well, the Jews were historically a rebellious people. You can just read through their Old Testament narratives of how they revolted under um, Nebuchadnezzar multiple times. And so even today, Jerusalem's a hotbed of activity and agitation, and so you don't want someone stirring the pot any more than it stirred. So the charge is that he is a social threat. Second... They claim that he forbids to give tribute to Caesar. Now, this is an absolute, bold-faced lie. There's, there's no truth to this whatsoever. In fact, we've seen in Luke's gospel just the opposite. Turn back to chapter 20. I mean, these people are so desperate and so corrupt that they try to spring a trap on Jesus, which he easily escapes, turns on them, And they go ahead and act as though he fell into the trap anyway. Verse 19, chapter 20. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. For they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to be delivered, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality. They try to flatter him, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness, and he said to them, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's, he said to them. Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer. They became silent. So Jesus clearly answered, give, give the seizures coins to Caesar and give to God the things that are God's. He escapes their trap. They're just going to pretend he fell for it anyway. He said we aren't to pay tribute. It's a bold-faced lie. And Luke has made that clear for us. And again, we see the corrupt nature of these men. These are... <laughs> I know I've said this, but I want to repeat this. These men did not make an honest mistake. They're just saying whatever they have to say to put Jesus to death, even if it means a bold-faced lie. What this means, then, is that not only does Jesus pose a social threat, but he poses an economic threat. So Jesus is a threat to the peace, 
But Pilate presumably would be in charge of collecting this tribute. And presumably if his coffers were light, he'd be in trouble. He'd be on the hook for that with Rome. So they're they're trying to come up with charges that will force Pilate to act. They're crafty. This, This man might start a revolt. This man might stop people from giving money to Rome, Pilate. Thirdly, he claims to be the Christ, a king, or Christ, a king. Now, this is where this text and the rest of this chapter is going to center on. This is going to be the charge that sticks. This is what's going to be written over the cross as Jesus hangs on it. And here we see they charge that Jesus poses a political threat. So a social threat, an economic threat, and a political threat. Now, what they mean to say is Jesus claims to be a king who will fight Rome. That's what they wanted. That's what they were expecting the Messiah to do. And Jesus has gone out of his way in Luke's gospel to make it clear that is not what he has come to do. And yet again and again, that's what they throw the charge out. So here's someone, they're saying, who would put himself up in competition with Caesar. And we know that Rome did not, governments don't generally put up well with people challenging their authority. So those are the charges. Now what's interesting now is that the question response, Pilate only really cares about one of them. And I think it's safe to assume he knew, just in the reports in Jerusalem, he's the governor of Judea, he's in Jerusalem, he probably heard of the triumphal entry. I'm guessing that was noteworthy. Thousands upon thousands of people lining the road into Jerusalem, the palms going down, hail the king of the Jews. And they weren't rioting. And they weren't stealing, and they weren't attacking Roman guards. It wasn't a threat to the peace. There was this big celebration as Jesus entered Jerusalem, but there was no disorder, disruption. There was no chaos in the week that Jesus was teaching in the temple. While the people gathered in such great crowds, hanging on his every word, there was no anarchy, no chaos. So presumably Pilate is not impressed by that charge. Also, he's not impressed with the charge that Jesus forbid giving the tribute to Caesar. Now, either he knows that's patently false, or by now, he knows he's had no trouble collecting the tribute. That'd be my guess. Because he doesn't, he doesn't care about that one either. It never comes up again. But the third one, the, the claim to be the king of the Jews, that's the one he's interested in. It's the political threat, the potential political threat that Jesus poses that causes him to investigate further. Which brings this question, are you the king of the Jews? Now Luke has established this clearly, the one born king of the Jews. We get Jesus' genealogy in Luke chapter 3, where we see he's a descendant of David. He is the, the legitimate heir of David's throne in his humanity. And as the son of God, he is the king as God is king. And Jesus answers, you have said so. Similar to a slightly evasive answer at the end of chapter 22. Are you indeed the son of God? You say that I am. Um, Philip Ryken speaks about Jesus' answer this way. Once again, Jesus was faced with a question that was hard to answer. On the one hand, he was not at all the kind of king that Pilate had in mind. He was not seeking the political power to rule a people group or control a geographic territory. If his kingdom had been of this world, he would have been leading an army of soldiers, which he obviously was not. Pilate did not need to worry. Jesus was not trying to overthrow the Romans. 
at least not yet. Nevertheless, even if Jesus did not agree with Pilate's definition of king, he could not deny that he was Israel's true king and rightful um, sovereign. So he gave the governor this answer. You have said so. This is similar to what Jesus said to the Sanhedrin when asked if he was the son of God. It was almost a reluctant affirmation. Without fully endorsing what Pilate meant, he testified that he was, as the governor said, the king of the Jews. The Apostle Paul uh, in 1 Timothy refers to this, um, charging Timothy to take courage. I charge you in the presence of God, 1 Timothy 6.13, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. Make no mistake, this admission here is ultimately the hook that they're going to hang the charge on, which they're going to kill him. This is where Jesus seals his fate. You have said so. Doesn't mean exactly the same thing Pilate means, but yes, indeed, he is the king of the Jews. And Pilate must have somehow understood that Jesus posed no geopolitical threat, because even though Jesus answers in the affirmative, we see his verdict. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, somewhere along the way, by the way, notice, groups of people have joined the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin's given its verdict, but, but Jerusalem's going to come out. Crowds are going to form, and they're going to speak with one voice. So Israel's leaders have condemned Jesus, and in this chapter, this crowd that's growing will also condemn him. As we saw last week, Israel's solidified, unified rejection of the Messiah, at least the vast majority. And Pilate says, and Luke wants us to hear clearly, I find no guilt in this man. This cruel and godless governor finds no guilt in Jesus. This corrupt leader finds no guilt in Jesus. Because there was no guilt in Jesus. They didn't like that. But they, and again, now we're including the crowd, but they were urgent saying, he stirs up the people. Teaching throughout all of Judea, from Galilee even to this place. They won't have it. They continue to touch, press him. They're going to almost bully Pilate into crucifying Jesus. At which point, Pilate thinks he's gotten out. He's going to kick the ball down the road. He's from Galilee, you say. He's in Galilee. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. When he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod. Which now brings us to point two, Jesus before Herod. You see, Pilate's in charge of Jerusalem, which is where Jesus currently now is, but Herod is the ruler of Galilee. We learned that in Luke 3.1, Herod being Tetrarch of Galilee. So Pilate passes this off because the Jews are in his face. They're pressing him. They don't like his answer, so he'll send him to another ruler. And so they take Jesus before Herod. So we've got to stop and ask, okay, who is Herod? Because Herod has been in Luke's gospel before this. Well, first and most obviously, Herod is the Tetrarch of Galilee. And secondly, Herod was an evil man, an evil man. This is, again, not a good guy. This is a bad guy, an evil man. In Luke 3.19 Herod, the Tetrarch, who'd been reproved by John the Baptist for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done. 
Herod had put John the Baptist to death in a sadistic way, putting his head on a platter because his niece had infatuated him. This is a wicked man, a wicked leader. Herod was evil. And so we see Herod examine Jesus. Herod examines Jesus. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he'd heard about him. And he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at length, but he made no answer. And again, this isn't the first time we've seen, even in Luke's gospel, Herod's desire to see Jesus. And I'd like to stop and make a point. Just because someone is eager to learn more about and see Jesus, just because someone is intrigued by Jesus, just because someone is happy, I mean, he's happy to see Jesus. In other contexts, you might think that's good. But you'll see in just a few moments, he'll be mocking him. This all centers around receiving and coming to Jesus for who he is. We're told for Herod, he's a curiosity. He's a miracle worker. He does signs. We might get a good show. And likewise today, people come to Jesus as a good moral teacher. If you come to Jesus as anything other than king, the son of God, Messiah, you're with this group. And he's, he's happy, happy to see Jesus. He was very glad, for he had long desired to see him. And nothing about that is good. So we, we, we read as much about that earlier back in uh, Luke 9. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard all these things that were happening. He was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead and some that Elijah had appeared and by others that one of the prophets had risen. And Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this that I hear such things? And he sought to see him. So from as early as chapter 9 in Luke, Herod's been hoping to get a chance to see Jesus. So here's his chance. He's very glad. So he questioned him at some length. Now, Jesus' interview with Pilate's, Luke's account is relatively short. Here, presumably, hours possibly go by. And Jesus says nothing. Jesus was silent before him. And to suggest to you that if any of Herod's desire to see Jesus were good, a sign of anything good in his heart, Jesus would have spoken to him. Jesus always responded with grace and kindness to the humble, to the convicted, to the contrite. So it's apparently possible to be a proud, self-righteous, evil person and still be very glad to see Jesus and want to see him. It comes down to how you come to him and who you come to him as. Herod's going to mock him as king in just a few moments. But so Jesus doesn't answer. Now, this has raised some debate. Why doesn't Jesus answer him? It's possible that Jesus didn't view Herod himself as a legitimate occupant of authority. Um, John the Baptist has already rebuked him for illegally marrying his brother's wife. And so it's possible that Jesus doesn't even recognize Herod as a legitimate ruler. It's also possible that Jesus views this as an as a illegitimate trial. After all, hasn't the verdict by the reigning judge already been given? Pilate, I find no guilt in him. So what is this second trial taking place for? In our country, we have a rule against double jeopardy. Once you've been found innocent, you don't get to get tried again for the same charge. 
So perhaps Jesus is silent simply because this is an illegitimate mock court. There's another reason why Jesus stays silent, though. And that's our third point that I want you to see this morning. We see that he's the king of the Jews. We see emphatically that he's innocent. But Jesus doesn't defend himself. He entrusts himself to God. Even the few things he does say are minimal. He doesn't really try to defend himself with Pilate, does he? He has to make the confession. He makes the good confession. He has to admit to it. But there's no, but you don't understand, I'm not, I don't mean that. He doesn't enter into any sort of attempt to defend himself, which is so contrary to our nature. I don't know if you're like me, but if I feel slighted, if I feel in, in, inappropriately judged or looked down upon, I want to make a defense. Respect me. Don't mistreat me. Jesus is only modeling for us that which he's already called us to do, the turning of the other cheek, not taking an offense. In fact, um, turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. Jesus' actions here, entrusting himself to God. God will be his judge. We're told by Peter, this is modeling how we're to act. In a very difficult portion of 1 Peter where he's calling on his readers to willingly suffer mistreatment. I'll start, start in verse 18. I mean, this is tough stuff. Servants, be subject to your masters. So 1 Peter 2.18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin, you are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure... This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this, namely unjust suffering, you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus won the battle in the garden. And he is resolute, unwavering. He will trust his father's plan. He will trust in his father's justice. He will not defend himself. Now turn to Acts chapter 8. It's another reason. I want you to see this picture of our fearless Savior making no response, not defending himself, unafraid, It fulfills scripture. Acts chapter 8, verse 26. Now an angel from the Lord said to Philip, rise and go south to the road. And you know this. He meets the Ethiopian eunuch on a chariot. The Ethiopian eunuch um, was reading the scroll of Isaiah, verse 30. And so Philip says to him, do you understand what you are reading? Verse 31, he said, how can I understand unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation, for his life is taken away from the earth? Now the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you? Does the prophet say this, about himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, beginning with this scripture, told him about the good news about Jesus it was prophesied in Isaiah 
that this servant, this suffering servant, would not defend himself. This suffering servant would, like a sheep before its shears, not cry out. That's what Jesus has done. Jesus set aside his right to defend himself. He set aside his right. He could have confounded them. We've seen this already. If Jesus wants to silence somebody, if he wants to refute somebody, he is quite powerful to do so. And he didn't. He didn't respond with curses. He didn't respond with a defense. He, like a sheep, was silent. He fulfills scripture. He offers no defense. Jesus willingly stood in our place. He doesn't try to get out of the hot seat. Which then leads to further accusations and mockery. When Herod doesn't get a show or see any magic tricks, he joins in the fun of mocking Jesus. The chief priests and the scribes are standing by, verse 10, vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in his splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. So the chief priests have followed him here, the scribes have followed him here. They're still accusing, they're still accusing. Now Herod joins in his soldiers in mocking Jesus. Um, Philip Ryken says this about the, the mockery and the splendid clothing. Presumably the robes they put on Jesus came from somewhere in Herod's closet, the hand-me-downs of a tyrant's wardrobe. Then once they had dressed him in these clothes, they proceeded to make a royal mockery of his kingly majesty. This was cruel irony. Jesus should be adored, not abused. He should be treated with reverence, not contempt. Yet as the temple guards had mocked him earlier as a prophet, so now the Roman soldiers mock him as king. There's great irony here. Jesus is going to be dressed up like a king, and he is king. Jesus is going to have a a robe put on him and a crown, crown of thorns. So we see that you can... Be very glad to see and learn about Jesus and mock him and hate him. It's precisely that point of Jesus' kingship that's being mocked. Kings are obeyed. Kings are obeyed. Kings are reverenced. Kings are honored. Now, if that's your relationship with Jesus, great. But if Jesus just has some good advice to give, you may well be wanting to see Jesus like Herod. Ultimately, you have to choose, is he king or not? Is he Lord or not? Is he the Son of God or not? All of humanity will be divided by that question. Which brings us then finally to Herod sends Jesus back to Pilate. (coughs) I'd first like to note that Herod finds Jesus innocent. We don't read that until a few verses later, to verse 15, but I want to jump ahead to that briefly. Pilate, in responding, says, well, verse 14, Behold, I did not find this man guilty of any charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. And again, we see the corruption. Herod is quite happy to mock and abuse an innocent, a man who he deems as innocent. These are corrupt men. And even these corrupt men don't find anything wrong with Jesus. I mean, it won't stop them from beating him. It won't stop them from mocking him. But, oh, is he guilty? Oh, no, of course not. And for Theophilus, reading this account of this perversion of justice, it's made abundantly clear. Both the the ruler of Galilee and the ruler of Judea 
announced Jesus as innocent. There's another sad irony here, point two. Jesus has come that man and God might be reconciled. They might be reconciled to God. Pilate and Herod reject that. But Jesus' advent reconciles them to each other. It is a sad irony. Herod and Pilate reconcile. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Make no mistake, these men have no love for Jesus. They just know he's not guilty. And we read, and Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for they, before this, they had been at enmity with each other. See, hatred of Jesus can unify. And ultimately, all the nations of the world will unify in their opposition to God. Turn, turn to Acts chapter 4 with me. The early church saw in this collaboration between the Jews and Herod and Pilate a partial fulfillment of that same unifying force seen in in, uh, Psalm 2. In Acts chapter 4, excuse me, read verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. So Peter and John, same before the council, they're mistreated. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, By the Holy Spirit, why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? This is Psalm 2, opening verses of Psalm 2. The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed, against his Messiah, against his Christ. That's Hebrew, Greek, and English for the same thing. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So the early church saw, here's this unlikely collaboration between Herod, Pilate, and the Sanhedrin. But their combined, unifying hatred of Jesus unites them in a way that ultimately all the nations of the world will be united against the Lord. Now I'm going to call the worship team up for a closing song. I want to make one final point. One final point. Jesus was silent at his trial, did not defend himself. But the good news is he does that so that he will not be silent at ours. Amen? We, we have someone before the throne of God not remaining silent, but interceding on our behalf. Jesus knows how to make a defense. He doesn't do it for himself, but he does do it for you and for me. That's a little later in Isaiah 53. When we get ready to sing, I just want to read to you the next verses. We read seven. He, he opened not his mouth, but go to Isaiah 53.10. Yet it's the will of the Lord to crush him. He is put into grief when his soul makes an offering for sin. Then verse 12. Therefore I will divide the portion with the many and the spoil of the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Even Isaiah 53, he's silent for the shears, but he intercedes for others. Our great hope is that our great high priest and God, the Lord Jesus Christ, even now intercedes and makes a defense, as it were, on our behalf. According to Hebrews 7, 
Verse 25, he always lives to make intercession for us. In 1 John 2.1, we have an advocate with the Father. So please stand and we will close our service within Christ alone.